On this edition of the Scott Thompson Show podcast with Scott Radley, me sitting in for Scott, we're going to talk about the education announcement yesterday. Annie Kidder, who is an education expert, will tell us what's right and what's not right about the announcement. We're also going to be chatting about the tent encampment here in Hamilton. There are some who say leave the homeless people who are setting up tent cities alone. Let them do their thing. Don't push them out. Others say, no, we really can't be doing that. Councillor Jason Farr, who's in the latter category, joins us. And we're going to chat about the CFL because Friday, the last day of July, was supposed to be D-Day for making a decision on whether or not there would be a season. Was announcement coming? Well, we're still waiting. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. Welcome! Welcome to the show, last day of July, long weekend Friday, greatest words in the English language, long weekend Friday. Glad you're here with the show though, with us today, we got a lot of stuff to get to. Starting off today, you heard yesterday the announcement from the Ontario government about kids going back to school. Interesting what's happened since... um, some people very much against, some people seem to be very much okay with this. Here, just for a bit of a background and as a bit of a refresher, here is what Education Minister Stephen Lecce had to say yesterday about the plans for kids to go back to school. We've pulled out all the stops for the 2 million students in this province. And let's be clear, our students deserve nothing less. This plan will evolve based on the evolution of COVID-19 and the risk to communities across the province. By having the one meter distancing in addition, to increase hand hygiene, in addition to the screening protocols, the testing, the embedded public health nurses, uh, and likewise the use of masking, we believe this will be safe for both elementary and for high schools in Ontario. The plans for elementary and high school remain safe because we've enhanced custodian spending by an additional $75 million to keep these touch points clean. Uh, we've also put in place a mandatory mask policy, which we think uh, will help improve the learning experience ultimately by keeping these kids safe no matter where they are. You heard, if you were listening to the station earlier today, you heard Greg Brady fitting, filling in for Bill Kelly talk about this with a number of guests. Uh, you know that, as I said a moment ago, there are those very much in favor. There are those who have doubts. There are those very much opposed. Let me bring in Annie Kidder. We love having Annie on here. She's the Executive Director of People for Education, one of the great voices on education in this province. Annie, thanks for doing this today. Thanks for calling uh, me and us a great voice. That's nice. A good well, nice Friday thing. <laughs> well, but it's true. I mean, honestly, it's true. When we look for people who know what they're talking about, you're at the top of the list. And and let me throw this to you right off the bat, because I want to get into whether or not you think this was a good or bad plan or something in between. But just before I get there, let me be a little bit cynical, if I may. It's, it's Friday, cynical Friday, we'll call it. Mm-hmm. We've heard that the teachers unions, I think all four of them today came out and said, we don't like the plan. Am I being too cynical by suggesting that no matter what the plan was that was offered yesterday, the teachers unions were not going to be happy with this? I think that if the province had let everybody know what the plan was before they announced it, but if they had brought people together in a task force, the thing we keep asking for that there would, there would have been less likelihood of that happening But because what happened was at one o'clock yesterday, all the directors of education, the teachers, the support staff, everybody who works in schools, they all found out with all the rest of us in the public uh, what the plan was. And I think that that, yeah, then you could go, oh, yeah, people are going to react to it. So even even directors of education who are aren't really allowed to be very public, 
um, or the trustees associations went, okay, maybe, or we're not, we're not seeing a lot of details here. So I don't think it's, it's, I, I think it's not that you're being cynical. It is, it is, you know, it definitely was going to have that problem if you didn't actually work with everybody in the first place to create the plan. And they said over and over in the press conference yesterday, we listened to the medical experts, the health experts, and, and they really said that over and over. And it's like, what about the educational experts? So I think it, this, this part was bound to happen. I think there are parts in the plan that are, that were, were, um, surprising and that are, you know, definitely a step in the right direction. But it is too bad that um, we may be in a situation, and they didn't work with people who run school boards either. So it, it, that that people are going to go once they try and figure out how they're going to do this, that in a week we're going to hear, which I think we will, um, there's there's not enough money um, to, to support some of this plan. And I'm I'm a little bit worried about the fact that they they ignored the part in the sick kids report about small class sizes. I'm so I'm worried about parents going, I'm not going to send my kid to school. That's a little that's a worry right now. Well, there's two groups that I've wondered about that. One is parents, and I think you're probably right. There are some parents who are going to be wondering about that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the other one is are we going to see because they left the option open it seemed for teachers yesterday? Are we going to see swaths of teachers saying, I'm not coming back to class? I don't think I really listened for that part because I really wondered about that. I don't think they did leave that open. I think they said that if you have a medical reason or a reason to do with age or, you know, connection to other people with sort of compromised immune system, it seemed like you had to have a real medical reason. You just, you couldn't like the parents because they got asked that by the media. Parents can just go, nope, not doing it. And you have to give my child an education online. I didn't get the sense that they were saying, yeah, teachers could just say, no, I don't, I don't feel comfortable. It seemed as if you had to have a you know, a pretty good reason. And also then that you were absolutely then going to move to be moved into the fine, then you're delivering online education, which makes sense, for sure. I worry a little bit. This is, sounds so bad. But I feel like I'm old, so I can say this, um, that people who feel that they're, you know, compromised, because they're you know, a little bit older, that they're going to be the ones this is a terrible thing to say. Anyway, delivering online education, I'm not sure that's necessarily the people you'd want to pick to do that. Well, it's tricky because look, go back to March, April, when the online stuff started. And what we heard was that this isn't working. This isn't good education. It's not easy to do. I'm wondering, we've now had, let's see, March, April, May, June, July. So five months almost, and we've got at least another month. Have we figured it out by now? When they come back in September, will the online thing, given three or four months of practice, two, let's say two or three months of practice and two or three months of prep time, Will the online be a better program, a better product? Well, I think that's a really good question. And again, you know, to be a broken record, I think if they had instantly in March or April appointed a task force or a big working table to focus just on that, we might be farther ahead. A, there'd be some sort of systematic way of collecting information from teachers and from students, this worked, this didn't work. Wow, when you do this, you really engage students. I did this and, you know, everybody dropped off and I never heard from them again, whatever. That's not a very scientific way of putting it. 
but that we would know more because the you know so the one of the surprises in the announcement yesterday was that for um urban areas which is really like three quarters of the students in ontario um they will be doing half their learning online and to for high school point, yeah for high school sorry for yeah. high school and to your point uh, you know i'm not sure how much real progress did get made so there you know boards are for the most part scheduling um, you know, they, the return to school to happen. So there's like three or four days of professional development for teachers before the kids come back. But that's not very long to figure out how to teach whole courses online. And, and the worry is that for the kids who are struggling, they and it's not because they don't have internet or laptops, um, it's because they're struggling for a variety of reasons that we're really going to lose those kids because now we're talking about probably the whole year, not just, you know, three months of an emergency. So, but you know, to answer your question in a nutshell, I'm not sure how much learning has gone on uh, from the experience in the spring. Well, could there be, from either side, from the government side or from the teacher side, would there be an excuse, having given the time and the, the, summer, the summer vacation, would there be a reasonable excuse for it not to be improved? And I, I, again, I'm saying government and teachers. <laughs> No, I don't think there is a reasonable excuse for it not to be improved. And I think that now that we're we're saying this is happening and it's real and it's per- permanent-ish, um, there it it has to be improved. So when the minister talked yesterday, it was like live, online, in per- in person, synchronous. So definitely, the part that will change is that it it's not just you know, I'm going to send you a bunch of emails with attachments, goodbye. And I'm not saying most teachers were doing this. Teachers were really trying. It was definitely a mixed bag. And there were, you know, definitely some consistency would be really, really important. I just think that, you know, again, back to like getting all the right heads in the room to figure it out. Uh, that That's the thing that would have been more most important. Now, it that probably or maybe happening within school boards that directors and superintendents are working with principals and teachers right while well, they're working their asses off excuse my language right now trying to figure out how to make this all work but it's like so hopefully there has been a lot of that uh, you know at the board level i think it would have been great to see it at the provincial level too um, Doug Ford yesterday, when he was introducing Stephen Lecce to make the announcement, one of the things he said, and I'm paraphrasing what he said, but that they had to balance the risk of the virus versus the emotional and social harm that was being done to students by missing more school. Do you do you believe that harm actually exists, that there is long-term dangers or downsides to kids not being in school? And, and I'm, I'm even leaving out the, just the teaching part. I'm talking just about the socializing and the emotional connection. Yeah, I, I think that, I mean, that's, you know, when you look at the Sick Kids report, which has had a lot of people working on it, and I think when you talk to mental health professionals, that there is a risk right now. And I think that we have to even think about the whole kind of uh, back to school. We have to think about kind of what the on-ramp is, because I think that, well, grown-ups are struggling enough. You know, I have a grown-up daughter who said that she feels that we're all suffering from kind of cosmic anxiety. They're <laughs> living in a pandemic is, you know, sucks. And it's and it makes you kind of anxious a tiny bit all the time. Every time you have to put on a mask to go somewhere, it's like, has the world become dangerous? So for kids, 
they're living with that, and if they're little, it's hard. I mean, it's hard enough for me, and I'm incredibly old to understand what's happened <laughs> to the world. But if you're a little kid, like trying to figure out, you know, and they do really think about it, you know, and little kids sometimes think in very simplistic way, I'm going to die, or I'm not going to die, or my mother's going to die. And so there's all of that part, but then there's not being able to be with your friends. So the social part of school and the structure of school and the place where I can talk about things or play or, yeah, have all that, that those are really, really important parts of, of kids' and teenagers' health. And I think that that, that that is serious. And we did, and you know, weighing then, I feel like our whole lives now are just all about weighing risks. It's like, yeah, can yeah. I go to the cottage? Can I go with my family? Do they have to wear masks? Like, we have to think about that all the time now. No, fun. Annie, I only have 30 seconds. Okay. I want to ask you this, though, because you, t- you touched on the, some of the issues around consulting or not consulting. If we go back to the Harris government and then the McGinty government and the Wynn government and the Ray government before that, and now it, every government, it seems, teachers unions in the government fight, and there seems to be a lack of trust between the two sides. This seems like it's another step in a lack of trust, but it seems like it's a cycle now that we don't trust you, so we're not going to involve you, but then we don't involve you, so now we don't trust you. How do you get out of this? Oh, well, I, I'm I'm not sure, but I think that you have to, it's like unilateral action. It's like, even though I don't trust you, I am going to set the table, I'm going to invite you to the table, and I'm going to listen to what you're saying. That, you know, one side has to do, and in this case, the provincial government had to do, that was their responsibility. It is, uh, it is always great to hear from Annie Kidder, the Executive Director of the People for Education. Thanks for taking some time today, okay, appreciate it. No problem, thank you. Bye-bye. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. So yesterday I started a segment by essentially saying what I'm going to say now, and that is if you drive around Hamilton these days in certain areas, you will notice tent encampments that have popped up, which are homeless people who have decided that this is where they are going to live right now. It's a tent. It's summertime. It is, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's somewhere they can live. This is not an easy discussion. But predictably, this is leading to uh, a bit of an uncomfortable showdown because on the one hand, and yesterday we had on the show lawyer Wade Poziemka, who is representing some of the advocacy groups and the people and some doctors who are saying, well, these encampments should be allowed to stand until proper places have been created for these people all to go. However, there is another side to the story. And today we're going to turn to one of the people who is on that other side, or at least has voiced opinions that push for the other side, which is the need to take them down for a number of reasons. And that would be Ward 2 Councillor Jason Farr, who joins me now. Ward, uh, Jason, how are you today? I'm fine, Scott. Thanks for having me on. And, and thanks to CHML for following this story closely. Well, you have, um, we heard, as I say, the uh, Mr. Koziemke, or Koziemke yesterday about this. Um, you've argued against the encampments. Why? Yeah, well, first I'll argue against the fact that there are no options. There have always been options presented uh, in our encampment task force work. We've been doing this for years informally, and Council formalized the encampment task force work in July of 2019. So last year, well before the pandemic. During the pandemic, presented with those options, each and every individual in the tent or individuals has provided been presented with options there's there's three right now there's a hostel there's hotel 
uh, and then there's housing. We've and we've we've been very successful during COVID. We've had over 80. I think it's approaching 85 successful navigations from sleeping and living rough in inhumane conditions, which was the whole point of uh, implementing the task force to begin with, to what we feel clearly not what others uh, obviously on the other side of this argument feel are much better, safer, more humane options. And again, there's three. There's hostels, there's Hotel Scott, and there's housing options. And we've been successful in over eight, well, around, right around 85 cases uh, uh, to date just during the COVID-19 uh, pandemic. And, and, and again, and for years previous. So I, I got to, you know, challenge that a little bit because I guess housing, uh, hotels, or hostels are not options that are good enough because that seems to be the argument. Because if we're hearing publicly from the other side of this argument that we're not presenting options, well, we are. You just don't like them, unfortunately. I don't know what else we can do. And, and, and if there are other things we can do that are better options, uh, we're happy to discuss that, and I'm sure Council will be happy to deliberate on that. But right now, there's clearly a, a camp that feels tenting and unsafe and inhumane conditions is better than the three op- options I've just offered you. That's the way it's being perceived anyway by some, including myself. Jason, is it your opinion, is it your view, is it your place that there are spaces for any of the people who are out there tenting right now or living on the street, there are places available for them to go? Yeah, given the circumstances, and each and every case is is by professionals who have experience, whether they're on our particular staff, whether it's health or, or emergency services staff, or even Hamilton Police Services or EMT staff, or our outreach partners, and there's a large majority of people working outreach with us on our encampment task force work that are being very, very helpful in finding the right fit for each individual because each individual obviously has, you know, different needs and they're, they're assessed. Now, there may be occasions where it's not available 30 minutes from now or even a couple of days from now, but that's the whole point of the task force, to find the right fit of the options that are available and always have been available and make those options work for that particular individual case. You and others who have been uh, at different degrees of bluntness about this have been getting a lot of blowback on social media. Um, You're not compassionate would be, uh, I guess, the biggest one because these are human beings with problems and you need to treat them as such. Uh, Are you are you listening? Are you reading social media? You're taking anything from that? For 10 years now. And it's, an, and it's an expectation of myself and I think every elected official at all levels of government that there's going to be blowback. Not every decision is going to get 100% unanimous appeal. I think you and I have talked about that in the past as well. And especially on a sensitive issue like this, I get it. There's an approach being taken by certain groups right now that tenting is better than a hotel option, a hostel option, or a housing option. Those options are not as good as tenting outdoors right now as it stands, clearly, by a certain amount of of folks out there who are doing phenomenal work, don't get me wrong, and and phenomenal work in in reaching out to gain more support. Uh, One group, Keeping Six, has a campaign right now to to fundraise and get 100 tents, 100 tents, Scott. And I think they're about halfway. I don't know for sure, but just my own approximation from two or three times daily inspecting the, the situation, especially since the pandemic began, that they're about 50 tents into their 100-tent 
campaign. But remember, there's also another side I, I have to listen to, and I think where where I may have irked some people, and certainly I do, I do of course see the social media, uh, was at council a few weeks ago, where I'm reading quote. I am quoting what I'm hearing as a counselor from the constituency, and most of the ones that I read, if not all of them, I think at that point in my five-minute time period, and it was five minutes of quotes, uh, were from people who are living adjacent. I have one right now, just on hold with you, that I'm happy to share to give you some perspective of what a counselor hears in situations like this from the other side, not the social media support side. Uh, but on the other side of the issue, I'm happy to, to read it to you, and I think it might put things in perspective for people that this is what the other side of the issue and what we have to deal with. So if you want to give me 45 seconds, I'm happy go to ahead. share with you. Yeah, just go one ahead. of many that come in daily on the other side of the argument. Hi, I'm the, I'm going to say store owner. They haven't given me permission to identify the store or their name. I've been in contact with you before about another store. Today it will be about my other location, which is near Barton and Ferguson, steps away from Ferguson's tent encampment. And by the way, there's about 33, 34 growing numbers of tents at that encampment. I'm very concerned of the ever-increasing everyday negative altercations in our already very challenging situation and with COVID-19. Every day our team and guests are put in more compromising safety situations. We are experiencing an increased incidence level of violence, vulgar disrespect, feces and needles at our property. Families are afraid to open their windows to place orders at our drive through uh, They are regularly solicited for money by intimidating, drunk, drugged, and or mentally challenged people who are not respectful or aware of COVID regulations. There are always altercations when we ask them to leave. We are in communication with many team members and guests who have the overwhelming consensus that these people are not nice people who are just down on their luck. Now, I don't necessarily completely agree with the tone. I don't necessarily, uh, I can't confirm that this consensus is what it's being billed as. I haven't even had an opportunity to call this particular constituent or engage further. Like I said, on hold with you, I just received this. But this isn't the only, only correspondence I received from the other side of this argument, Scott. This well, and as I said similar, to Mr. Pauzy, similar tones, very similar well, tones. I, I said to Mr. Pozyemka yesterday, uh, just a little over a year ago, I was down in L.A. and San Francisco, two of the hotbeds where this is a huge, huge problem. And I we drove by and we saw some of this. And when we got home, we started reading about it. And many of the things you just described, the feces on the sidewalk and the needles and the drug use and the violence and, and the filth, um, it, it's, not a, it's not a knock. I don't think it's a knock against these people if they have mental health issues or addictions. But I think that if you're a, if you're someone who is paying your taxes, you're a constituent. I think you, I, I think it's a difficult thing to suggest that you are being not, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? That you're being not compassionate. That you're being not right. compassionate if you say I don't want these people on my front lawn or I don't want these people on the public streets. But that that seems to be the position that we're now in. You're either compassionate and let them stay, or you're not compassionate and you're trying to kick them out. I I don't know how you bridge that gap. Well, we do it with the encampment task force. So to go full circle on our conversation, we are compassionate. We do have options. We do have professionals who are very focused in on those individual cases, and we are sympathetic to the drug addiction. Drug addiction. We are sympathetic to the mental health, and we do have outreach partners and staff who are well-versed in dealing with those and provide the proper options or make every attempt to provide the proper options to those people. That is getting lost, like you just suggested, uh, Scott, and fair enough, because I see 
that, that maybe some are wanting to create a divide. I'm not suggesting you are, but it's, it's not as black and white. It's not a those people got to go sort of argument. When I bring up, and you're talking about the social media and how cold-hearted Farr is, and I can't believe that he's uh, trying to just uh, 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 eliminate tents and not care for you know, the situations as to why they're there, whether, you know, he in 10 years didn't provide enough housing opportunities, and that's why we're in the position we're in. I get all those arguments, but the reality is there is a middle part where we are sympathetic, we do understand. It isn't just about, but it is about the fact that we, like every other city probably in North America, we don't know of another one in, in the province anyway, have bylaws. We have zoning bylaws about that, that, that don't include in, in these areas tenting overnight camping we have overnight camping bylaws that, that that say you can't erect a tent and sleep outside on public streets or public parks or even private property is, is covered by our encampment task force if you had a private property and tents were on it bylaws is going to come in and say you can't do that that's not that's not that's a zoning uh, infraction so so there's there's that element but there are other uh, aspects to this, and it is done sensitively. And 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 you know, as much as you know, I just read from one that didn't uh, relay what I, you know, a very prevailing theme from those who are having issues with the tents, especially those who are operating businesses or living. I hear from more homeowners or or people who live adjacent than businesses right now because there are two apartment buildings across from Ferguson. But you know, most have some caveat that they are sympathetic to, that they understand that these folks have challenges and those challenges need to be addressed uh, uh, sensitively. Almost all of them suggest that. Maybe it wasn't in this particular article. It could be that this was written uh, you know, out of anger and frustration and, and maybe not well thought, thought through in terms of its you know, oral presentation. But the reality is most people do understand and are sympathetic. In this city and every other, Scott, I went for a tour last week. I don't know if you heard. I talked to Ted Michaels, who was in for Bill. I talked to him from Kitchener, where at that day they had planned to dismantle an, an, an illegal encampment. Uh, when, I, when I arrived following the interview, to, to witness how sensitively uh, in Kitchener they handle dismantling encampments, they had told me in, this, in the, what they call a soup kitchen, we don't define it as soup kitchens in Hamilton, but they do there, uh, that, that they had a reprieve the night before or the day before uh, of the, the, the date that was broadcasted live, that it was going to be dismantled, and gave them three, I think, three or four more weeks so they could find alternatives. Then I went to London where they're doing not a, a sanctioned uh, encampment, but they have 12, I counted 12 tents, in an area not like Ferguson Street, not like York Street, an area outside of the downtown that's adjacent to a Salvation Army, a dead-end street, and a CN rail track. And, and they, they are doing a non-enforcement. They're permitting it. And I spoke to some people at an institution nearby, and I asked, what's, what's it been like? This is London's only area. It's 12 tenths. Uh, and what what... what you know, what are the eventualities that come with a non-enforcement of an encampment site? Well, everything you just heard from what I read to you from the one constituent just now, and then some was heard. In fact, in one case, this particular individual told me that three nights before, a, an activist group had handed out bats to each and every person living in those tents. And I said, why would they hand out bats? And, and what was the result? And the result was, he said, pretty obvious there were bat fights and and it was very concerning to this particular individual as well as other things that this this group would do outreach and they stopped doing outreach because of the violence that they were met with it's unfortunate it's an unfortunate byproduct and one unfortunately scott 
that in Hamilton is becoming more and more acute as Keeping Six and others are doing tent drives to get more and more tents. As they grow, the problems get greater. As far as I can perceive from the people who are communicating on the other side of the issue that, that are, are, are sharing with me what they're seeing and what I'm seeing, frankly, on a daily basis. Okay, so you mentioned a few minutes ago that the city has bylaws against this. Uh, the, the, the advocates won a 10-day injunction yesterday. Does this suggest that your bylaws just don't have any teeth and aren't very well written, that we don't have them in a way that can get rid of people, or is there something else going on? Well, if the Superior Court, which is where this appeared, uh, it does eventually determine, this was just an injunction to say for 10 days, don't do anything that takes tense away from, that forcefully takes tents away from those sites. As I understand it, we're getting an update on the 11th day of this injunction, so on the first day where the injunction is no longer in fact at our GIC. So I'll know more, and the rest of my colleagues and the mayor will know more of that. But uh, at, in terms of the, the bylaws, if they're going to be challenged in court, and if the court, the superior court, decides that in Hamilton you ought to let organizations work with homeless people and let them put tents anywhere you want in your city, uh, a counter to your current planning zoning bylaws, counter to your no encampment bylaws, no tents going in parks or public streets, then that isn't just going to be a Hamilton thing. That's a superior court ruling, and everywhere else where folks want to work with homeless or homeless people themselves, want to put a tent up anywhere they want, that, that'll have ramifications across the province, as, oh, as sure. far as I can understand it. So, so this is a much bigger issue. And it's one where what's being challenged is not exclusive to Hamilton. These zoning bylaws and bylaws are everywhere. And there are no, other than London, no staff right now working closely on this file, and there's a lot of them, each and every day can tell me of another city in Ontario that permits this. Jason, i got to go in a second. got 30 seconds here, so you got to stick to your 30-second radio uh, background here. Okay. Is, the, is there a possibility of doing what London did and creating somewhere out of the downtown a safe zone and say, listen, if you want to have tents, move them here. We'll put some porta potties. We'll have some public health people come, and then we can all live happily together. Or is that not feasible? That's the whole reason why I went to London. I wanted to discover how does it work. Unfortunately, what I, and I really thought from Kitchener to London that I'd be, I was whistling all the way, thinking we're that was the whole point. That then I can better contemplate areas in the city, whether it's Ward 3, Ward 1, Ward 2, Ward 4, who knows where that location is, but I was certainly very much open-minded to that. Am I still? Absolutely. It may very well be uh, the consolation to all this and bring everybody together singing Shangri-La-di-da, including those who are very much unfortunately living in the roughest conditions, sleeping rough with inhumane and, and unsafe conditions on the street rather than taking one of our very safe options of hostel or hotel or even housing in some cases. So in 30 seconds, I'm still keeping an open mind. And ultimately, when staff report back on August 10th, that will be one of the things I'm sure council would want to discuss. War 2 Councillor Jason Farr, thanks for taking the time today. Thanks, Scott. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. This topic is a little heavy, I grant you, but it's a really important topic because according to the Canadian Federation of Independent Business, one in seven small businesses, think about this for a sec, one in seven small businesses are at risk of going under as a result of what is going on in the economy right now with COVID. And that's on top of the ones that have already succumbed to this. 
158,000 small businesses could be a victim to this in Canada alone. Laura Jones is the Executive Vice President at the Canadian Federation of Independent Business. She joins us now. Laura, thanks for doing this today. Thanks for having me on the show. Um, I, I saw this number and I, my first thought was this is an impossibly high number. I mean, first of all, it's very daunting. How, how do you reach a number like this? Well, essentially, we asked business owners across Canada uh, what kind of condition they're in and what their expectations are. And we used a, a survey-based approach where we um, looked at those businesses that were agreeing or strongly agreeing with the statement that they are currently um, actively looking at winding down their businesses or declaring bankruptcy. Um, and then, of course, there's a range around that estimate because there were a group of businesses that says that said they don't know, and so we didn't include them in the in the kind of the, the mid-range estimate that 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 you just described of of uh, one in seven businesses um, are, are at risk of of closure. Um, uh, and then there's a um, also a kind of a, a, a low end bound um, on that number. So um, yeah, so there's a range, and you know it ranges from one in twenty to one in five. Um, but our kind of best guess at this point is one in seven. Of course, the actions that we take going forward have uh, the capacity to affect that number, uh, both government relief programs and, of course, uh, consumers also have a lot of power in this equation. Yeah, and, and so the, the, the extremes of the equation, by the way, which you mentioned, uh, the highest would be around 218,000 businesses, which is just stunning. The lowest would be 55,000. That's still an unbelievably high number in a country of our size. Yeah, and it's still much higher than the normal churn you would get in that section of uh, sector. Of course, you've always got some some businesses that are you know that are closing and others that are starting, but it's much higher than that uh, than that normal churn. So this is a very worrying picture. Um, it's not entirely surprising to us though when we because we've been surveying businesses you know um, at weekly uh, for the past uh, 18, 19 weeks. And what we're seeing in those uh, survey responses, I mean, there's just an enormous amount of stress. And you've got only one in four businesses now reporting that they're back to normal revenues. Mm. So, you know, that's that's very um, that that that's a very low percentage that are back to normal revenue. And and the thing is, even those businesses that are back to normal revenue are saying they're really struggling with the debt that they took on um, in order to cope with the business closures. Um, so things may look a little norm, more normal on Main Street. You know, things are open and you're seeing your business owners who are welcoming you back uh, to their businesses. And, of course, they're going to put on a very, um, you know, happy pit. They're happy to see you. So that's what you're going to see. Um, but what you don't see is the stress um, after hours when they're looking at their books and trying to figure out how they're going to pay their bills. Well, and to counteract this, I mean, you and others have been encouraging people to shop locally and shop at small businesses in your community and do those things that we hear a lot. The, the irony I suppose, and it's not a good irony, is during this pandemic, uh, people have become apparently very, very, very comfortable, far more than ever before with online shopping. I think I saw a report that online numbers were up 100% since the pandemic started. And so when people go online to shop, they often will land on the big places that are very prominent, the Walmarts and the Amazons and the Home Depots. These are not small businesses. It's hard to get the attention of people if you're a small business trying to grab eyeballs right now. 
It is. And so one of the things we're encouraging, you know, not everyone is comfortable going out and shopping. And certainly, um, you know, we understand that. Uh, But what we're encouraging people to do is take that little bit of extra time to find a local business online. And many, many businesses have um, gone to great lengths to accelerate um, their getting online. It's not not a model that works for every business, um, but many of them have um, have done that. And you can find those local options online. Um, and, you know, even if it's a small business that's not local to your community, but is, is a Canadian small business, um, I would say that I would suggest that that's a better option right now than going to, as you suggest, the, you know, the Walmarts and the Amazons. Um, they've seen, um, you know, an increase in business uh, through this uh, pandemic. And meanwhile, small business owners are, are still really, really struggling. And again, the second part of this that becomes so difficult is that even if you do have some online presence or if people can find you as a store, you're still competing price-wise with the big companies that you can usually undercut you and they can offer free delivery and all these other things that are going to cut into your bottom line. It's, it's, it's a really tough position for those small businesses right now. It is, but I would say even, you know, small businesses often compete on service and knowledgeability around their product. And even online, um, that can happen. I went out of my way to, to uh, find a local business. I was ordering some, some uh, socks, actually, that my daughter really wanted. And so I went out of my way to find an independent business to order them from. And I made a mistake in the order on one of the, one of the pairs of socks. And wouldn't you know that that business owner, you know, contacted me directly and said, did you really mean to order my, my daughter's 11? Did you really mean to order the, you know, three-month-old socks because the rest of your order was in the, you know, uh, 11-year-old category. And so, you know, that service extends um, even um, to those online purchases often. So there's good good reasons uh, to do that. And, and our, our listeners can find some great information, too, about how to make it affordable because there are a lot of big businesses right now that have, like, you get extra um, points or extra dollars on your credit card, on your American Express, for example, statement for shopping local. So that can make it very worthwhile. And you can find those at um, www.smallbusinesseveryday.ca, which is where you can find some information about CFIB's Small Business Everyday campaign. And essentially what we're doing is we're trying to profile anyone in Canada who's um, promoting local shopping. And and you've got kind of a one-stop shop for all the cool things that are, are happening and will happen into the fall to support local business. Is the Canadian Federation of Independent Business looking simply to have awareness so that people know to go and find these small companies, or are you still looking for government help? I mean, what what is there that they could or should be doing to help you in addition? So that's a great question, because I think a successful recovery um, and, and coming to the lower end of this range of business failures rather than the higher end relies on two things. So the first is um, businesses really do need to get back to making normal sales. So um, consumers are, have been a lifeline. Um, businesses love their consumers. Um, it's it's really that piece of it's really important. And I, I think sometimes we feel like maybe we're too small to make a difference um, by buying that cup of coffee at a local business or a cupcake or looking online for a pair of socks for your daughter or whatever it is. But you know what? My favorite Dalai Lama quote is, if you think you're too small to make a difference, try sleeping with a mosquito. You're not too small to make a difference. So consumers are critical. But the second part that you alluded to, which I think is also really important, is the government support programs and getting them right. And the one that is still really off the mark right now is rent relief. I mean, today we had an announcement they're extending to August, but there are so many businesses that still don't have access to the program because they've made it entirely dependent on whether 
or your landlord um, will apply. And in some cases, landlords aren't in a position to do that. Um, and so um, that's a real, real disappointment. And that's one program that we're looking at that really needs to be fixed to help bridge more businesses back to recovery. Laura Jones, Executive Vice President of the Canadian Federation of Independent Business. Thanks for taking the time today. Appreciate it. Thanks so much. Uh, it is something to keep in mind. Um, if you have an opportunity, I don't want to be dumping on the big businesses, but if you have an opportunity to find something at a small business, you can be making a difference. You really can. And look, they're not paying me to say that, and none of the companies are paying me to say it, but we, we do want our neighbors to be still in business and still employed. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Rick Zamperin of 900 CHML joins me in studio. Rick, you're in here because today is supposed to be D-Day for the CFL. We know the league has not started because of COVID. We don't really know what's supposed to be happening. They've talked about a hub city in Winnipeg and six games. And July 23rd was supposed to be the day they would decide if they're going to play. That became July 24 as D-Day. That got put off to today. And in the last hour or so, we're just seeing tweets from some CFL reporters, including Dave Naylor from TSN, saying, no announcement expected today. Rick, at some point, this becomes ludicrous. I think we're probably already past that point because, you know, if you're a CFL fan, you just want the game to come back. And every time you hear there's going to be a deadline or a possible major announcement or something new or, you know, a breaking element that could potentially pave the way for a restart in 2020, uh, there's always a letdown. And that, that other shoe still hasn't dropped, and we're kind of all waiting for that. And I think at the end of the day, most people, whether they're fans or not, um, they will probably in the back of their mind think there's not going to be a season and, and maybe there shouldn't be a season because what we have seen or what it's been laid out in front of us in terms of the plans, if football goes ahead north of the border, is that it's going to be a six-game campaign starting in and around Labor Day or a week after and eight of the nine teams get into the playoffs and the Grey Cup is going to be in Winnipeg. All the games will be played in a bubble in Winnipeg at IG Field. Um, and, you know, if you're a, a purist to the game, you're looking at a six-game season as opposed to an 18-game season, and you're thinking, I don't want to watch that. Uh, that that's not how this game should be played. Uh, and, you know, again today, another deadline on, you know, will this season progress? And we're just not there yet. I think there has to be a day, and you know, a, a firm deadline where the commissioner gets up and says, yay or nay, yeah, there's going to be a season or there's not going to be a season. And the the you know, overwhelming um, thrust behind it is whether or not the federal government is going to pony up and pay upwards of $42.5 million just to play this truncated season. Okay, I want to get to a bunch of things that you said there, but first of all, you have set, the league has set a deadline for today. They set it. We didn't set it. They set it. One way or another, does Randy Ambrosi not have to get up in front of the cameras or in front of the media or do a conference call or something and say something. He can't simply just let the day slide by with no answer, the commissioner of the league, can he? He's got to do something to say what the heck is going on. Well, especially now this being the third, you know, so-called deadline day that, you know, after uh, after this, if this day passes and and nothing is said from the commissioner or the, the Players Association, it's the boy who cried wolf. It's, yeah, you know, today's going to be the deadline and, and uh, we'll, we'll have some kind of decision and nothing happens. 
um, you know, fans are going to quickly tune out if they haven't done so already. The commissioner has to get up at the end of the day today to say one of two things, or maybe one of three things. Number one, there's not going to be a season. Number two, yes, we have a deal. Uh, we're going to go forward. Number three is we're still working on it. And that might be at the end of the day, the answer that we hear um, through nothing that is said at all, because if nothing is said, you can only think that they're still trying to work on a deal. But if nothing is said, Rick, I don't know if you noticed this today, but Randy Ambrosi today sent a statement, a video statement to the Finnish football league, because they're with CFL 2.0, they're trying to like take over the world. And so he sent a greetings to the Finnish Football League. Look, if you have time to sit down and do a video chat for the Finnish Football League, you darn well have time to talk to the media, the, the football media in this country and say what's going on. And not appearing to me, out of sight, out of mind, you, you're just letting this thing slide by and becoming completely irrelevant to so many sports fans. This has been a summer long, really a spring and summer long, of fumbling from the commissioner of the CFL. Not only did he initially go in front of the federal government to ask for upwards of $150 million to save this season and maybe even portions of next season without the Players Association or any players represented, that was a major fumble. Not getting any sort of deal done uh, months ago to prepare for some kind of shortened season with the PA was another big blunder. And these continuous deadlines without a statement to say what the next steps are or if this is the finality of 2020 um uh, the 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 non-messaging from the commissioner's office has just been absurd and he has to get up today to say something well he has to and, I, and i'll tell you why m- my belief on why he does and, and people can agree or disagree with this this is a league that fights constantly with the idea of being semi-pro or not the NFL or not one of the big leagues. And if you don't treat it like a big league, you send the message that it's not a big league. And I find it very hard to believe that Roger Goodell with the NFL would just not appear and let deadlines pass and we would hear nothing. You, you, If you want people to treat you like you matter, you have to treat it like it matters. And I'm just not getting that sense a lot of the time this summer. And you bring up a good name in Roger Goodell. And I've said this, uh, you know, I said this months ago. Why hasn't the CFL, and maybe they have, why hasn't the league gone to the NFL to say, listen, we're on our knees here. We really need some help. Uh, can you financially assist us through this season and work out some sort of deal like they did years ago with the National Football League in in getting through this uh, this season, I know the NFL is going to have its issues come the fall with players opting out and maybe not all the games going ahead. But the Canadian Football League had more than one avenue to get this season underway. And that was more than just asking the federal government for cash. And it's taken this long for them to, uh, you know, get another meeting with the, the, the feds to, to iron out some kind of plan. But the first step after the feds said no was to be going down south to the NFL to say, hey, can we get help from you guys? We'll work out some kind of, uh, you know, uh, uh, contract or deal. To, to get this done. And that hasn't happened. This has been a complete failure top to bottom by the commissioner, uh, by the league as a whole. There are other reports that are also coming out that says that the federal government today has offered help to the CFL, but it's in terms of a very high interest short-term loan mm-hmm. that um, some are saying that would be more harm than good because you're a league now that's got to turn around and pay this back and you don't have a lot of money coming in. Uh, there is something that... Somebody has, or a number of people on social media have followed up with a question. I think it's a fair one. I am assuming that the federal government, if they're going to give a loan or has asked the CFL for some sort of breakdown of its finances, 
if you are willing to give all this money to the we charity and you're willing to give loans and debt forgiveness to companies all over the country and everything else, what does this say something about the finances of the league that you would be in this position? Well, it certainly does. I mean, A, they don't have a, a treasure chest or a war chest to go to, to, you know, in times like this to, to pay the bills and keep the league afloat and, uh, you know, continue to pay its staff and players and, and host some games, whether there's fans there or not. Uh, the league's finances have been in dire straits for decades, really now. Um, and there's there's no changing that. There's no snapping of the fingers to, and to say, hey, now we have a financial windfall. Uh, and whether this deal or not comes together with the federal government, if it is a loan, from a fan perspective or just a general Joe Schmo perspective, that'll be more easily stomached, if you will, as opposed to a handout. Um, but at the end of the day, if if they don't have millions upon millions of dollars from either the feds or some kind of uh, you know charity organization, this this season's not going to fly. So what happens if they don't play? I mean, if this doesn't happen, is this, some have said the league dies. Um, Some have said if they play, it's going to be more difficult because some teams actually lose money. And so not playing might save them some money in the long run. What what happens if there's no, no season this year? That to me is the more interesting question, because now we're talking about next year and years down the road and what kind of impact will COVID-19 have on the future of the CFL as a whole. And right now it's a question mark. I don't think it's the death knell. I don't think, you know, not playing a season here in 2020 is going to wipe out the existence of the Canadian Football League. Yes, they're in financial difficulty. Yes, there's owners that have other bills to pay. Yes, players aren't getting paid. CFL staff aren't earning a paycheck. But at the end of the day, if they were able to come back, uh, vaccine or not, or, or, or pandemic or not, or, or whether fans were allowed in the stadium or not, if they were able to come back in 2021, uh, how much momentum, how much uh, all, the, all that other auxiliary stuff would they lose in terms of fandom? I don't think it, it would be quite that lost because looks, look at what's happened with the NHL, the NBA, Major League Baseball, the NFL might be in the same situation, MLS. Every major pro sports league has had to shift gears and pivot and uh, tweak their season. If the CFL loses the season, it'll be in the same boat as the American Hockey League, all the Canadian Junior Hockey Leagues, like uh, the, the Ontario Hockey League. Um, it, would, it would be back next year. And it may not be as financially strong because there's going to be some losses to recoup, but I think games would still be played. I think the league as a whole, all nine teams would still be in existence. We, you know, the idea seems to be that there has to be this momentum that carries it forward. And if you miss a year that somehow everybody's going to forget about you. How many, how many years is it now? 110, 112 years the CFL has been around and, you know, they don't play year round. They stop in November and don't start again until May. And in that half a year, people don't forget about the CFL. So I, I, I find the argument that says that somehow if they don't play this year, that they'll just be, they'll, everyone will have suddenly collective amnesia and forget this league and will never come back. I find that ludicrous. I think people, the TSN will cover it with Friday Night Football just like they have and they'll give it tons of coverage and people who love the sport will come back and you may not have exactly the same amount of people right away. But it's not like you're going to forget. But, you know, as a whole, CFL fans are CFL fans. You know, in, in the baseball strike, when the NHL lockout happened, you know, fans came back. If the CFL lost its season due to the pandemic, fans would be back. Um, if, if it was a player strike or an owner's lockout in the Canadian Football League, yeah, they might lose some fans. But I think fans are understandable that, you know, this is an unprecedented year and uh, they'll be back in 2021. 
We will see. I am, I am for the sake of the league, because I know you're a fan. You've done play-by-play. You've followed this team, the Ticats, for years. Uh, we're fans of this league. I really, really hope Randy Ambrosi steps forward today and says something, because I think it would be a huge mistake to let a third deadline pass with no no comment. But we, we shall see. No word yet that I've seen. Anyway, maybe there is out there, but I haven't seen it yet. Agreed. Yeah, it's something's hap- something has to happen today, good, bad, or ugly, and uh, fingers crossed that uh, you know a deal gets done. Rick Samprin, thanks for taking the time. You got it. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.